0: Bonjour and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the No Fluff, Actionable Marketing Podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. After four years, 175 episodes recorded, 9625 minutes of no bullshit content published, and 1 million plus downloads reached, I felt it was time to shake things up a bit. You see, I wanna help you radically stand out because I firmly believe it's the only way for you to succeed without marketing bullshit. So moving forward, each episode is gonna be around 20 minutes long. Each episode is gonna be super practical where I'm gonna teach you one way to radically stand out that you can apply to your business today. I'm gonna use snippets of past interviews, the lessons I've learned from my own experience and plenty of concrete examples. Oh, and one last thing, I'm also turning each of those episodes into the only newsletter focusing on differentiation and positioning, so you can read at your own pace and remember the concept I'm teaching. If it's of interest, I hope you'll sign up today on everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'll also notify you when I launch new stuff and products, and you can win rewards for referring other Mavericks to the newsletter, like branded cups and t-shirts and posters and private group coaching and plenty of other nice little surprises. All right, on to the podcast. The idea for this episode started when Deborah Lane posted an article in the Everyone Hates Marketers private community on Facebook. She posted this article from Marketing Week that, and the headline said, narrow targeting is counterproductive to b2b growth so the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is an institute that measures a lot of stuff around marketing tries to prove a lot of stuff using actual science um Byron Sharp works there and they published a handful of books including how brands grow one and two they are ex- excellent book that really removes the guessing out of marketing and proves a lot of stuff that uh, modern marketers should use to grow their brand and one of the core thing they really advocate for is the fact that irrespective of your size or positioning a brand's main competition are the biggest brands in this category and they've done this new study for b2b in particular that proved uh, the same thing which is called the duplication of purchase law it tells us that it doesn't so much matter what our positioning is or what products we sell if we are competing in a market with a brand then how they are as competitors is really related to their size. We will share more of our customers with bigger competitors and fewer of our customers with smaller competitors. And in this article, they basically say that ultimately, you want to target anyone who buys a category, not just some niche segment you think your brand can own. You likely have limited resources as a company, right? And what you want to do is really grow market share in the category and grow market share compared to the leaders. And... You might be a new startup, you might be an established company that has stopped growing, you might want to grow more. It seems like from this article they are telling you that because of the duplication of purchase law, you need to kind of target everyone under the sun that buys your category, that buys the thing that you produce. And so you might be willing to take this headline and this article for face value and follow their advice to the letter and pouring everything you have into targeting everyone in a category, no matter well, product or service. Uh, you might want to make your market as big as possible because, you know, why not? trying to make your market as big as possible so that you can make as much money as possible. You might think that you basically therefore play the same game as those big established brands that tend to be mentioned in those books and research like, you know, Apple and Tesco and all those massive massive brands in massive category. Uh, and you might think that actually gimmicks like, you know, a better message or better story with an average product might actually just help you to grow market share and compete against those giants. I really want to record this episode because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this uh, specific advice that is being shared around, which is a fantastic advice that tells you that, hey, you're not as special as you think you are. The truth about this is that you cannot compete against big brands unless you have millions to pour into marketing for years and years and years so that you can gain a share of voice and then market share, especially in saturated markets, especially if you have an average product that is nothing crazy new or crazy different from the rest. And that's because big brands also benefit from the double jeopardy law that says that the higher the market share you have, the more loyal your customer will tend to be and the more light buyers, that is buyers who don't tend, from, uh, tend to buy from the category often, uh, will buy from you. And therefore, the smaller you are, the opposite is true. It's also true that the more market brand size you have, uh, the more your advertising campaigns will be successful because your market share size is the number one factor that makes advertising campaigns successful, followed by creatives. And actually, the target audience is the least important factor of them all. Those big brands have a huge advantage that you likely don't have. And yet you're being told to try to target everyone in the category to gain market share. So what's going on here and what should you actually do? The right solution is rooted in this kind of allegory by Seth Godin in, in his book, This Is Marketing. He says, there is a dangerous prank that relies on thief detector dye. This dye, so as the powder, is quite bright and a tiny bit goes a long way. Once the powder touches the moisture of your skin, it blooms into a bright purple and won't easily wash off. Drop a teaspoon of it into a swimming pool and all the water in the pool will become permanently bright purple. But if, if you drop it in the ocean, no one will notice. When you seek to share your best work, your best story, your shot change, it helps if it's likely to spread. It helps if it's permanent. But even if it's extraordinary, it's not going to make a difference if you, if you drop it in the ocean. That doesn't mean you give up hope. It means you walk away from the ocean and look for a large swimming pool. That's enough to make a difference. Begin there with obsessive focus. Once it works, find another swimming pool. Even better, let your best customers spread the idea. The right solution is at the root of radical differentiation. It's all about finding an undeserved segment of the market that you can own and defend in a category that puts your product and the value that it provides to this segment under the right context and the right light by offering a solution that gives them a compelling reason to switch from whatever those customers are doing right now. Could be using a direct competitor, could be using competitive alternatives, could be doing nothing, specifically for early adopters and insiders, that will grow by word of mouth and then doing it all over again and all over again. Geoffrey Moore in the book Crossing the Chasm calls that the beachhead strategy. It's a kind of a warlike vocabulary, but really at the root of it, Yes, if you have a big brand already, you want to try to color the massive category purple. If you have plenty of resources, maybe you can buy so much dye that you can actually color the ocean purple. But it's unlikely that if you're listening to this episode, this is the case for you. And so what you need to really seek to do is find a much smaller part of the ocean. And in fact, a large uh, swimming pool that is big enough for you to dye And then you can expand you color this small swimming pool purple then you grow into a bigger swimming pool uh, with the resources that you've gained etc etc and the key reason why the advice that i mentioned at the start that says you need to target everyone in the category is a bit misleading is because first you might not be a brand yet you might actually never become a brand at all if you're a small business And brand consultant Mark Ritson goes further and doesn't consider brands unless they have those characteristics. The
1: brand game doesn't really get going for about four or five years. So in terms of working with brand, I've worked with relatively young brands when they were seven, eight, 10 years old. Yeah. So I I work with Sephora, for example, the big cosmetics chain, and we have a little, uh, a wonderful program called Incubator, where we take the two hottest, fastest growing little brands and growing fast, And we work on them, and we help them, and we we incubate them. But even those brands, they still need four or five years already before we can really get into brand strategy. The first three or four years are about finding your way, getting some loyalty, understanding the path. There's not a lot of brand strategy work can be done in years one to five. All you would say to anyone with a new brand is, don't create more than one brand. Don't be a fuckwit. Yeah, That's literally... That would be my consulting advice in an envelope to everyone with less than you know 5 million euros in revenue and less than five years, don't create two brands or, or you're an idiot.
0: When you read book like How Brands Grow, you might think that your small business or your startup or your consulting gig follows it can follow the advice, but you're not a brand yet. And in fact, Martin Neumayer, who's the brand expert who wrote the bestseller Zag, talks about it from the perspective of scissors, rocks and papers. He calls Caesars the startup, the small businesses that have a sharp focus. Their goal is to cut a small area of business away from the papers, the massive companies. And the papers are the biggest companies. They have a lot of brands, less focus, and they survive using network effects and and they smother the rocks. The rocks being the medium-sized companies with a bit more brands and less focus. And those rocks crush Caesars that don't have momentum. And he argues that the only way for you to compete as a Caesar, as a startup, a small business, is to cut away a tiny, tiny portion of the paper business. The second reason why I found the advice about targeting a a category a bit misleading is because you might think that the category you're in is absolutely gigantic. It's not about what is the biggest box I could put our product into so that people understand it. It's about what is the smallest box I can put it into, what is the smallest swimming pool I can find to put them into perspective. And if you just, for the B2B perspective, you just look at the site G2 and go to the categories, you can see the sheer number of categories, subcategories, sub -sub subcategories, and even sub sub -sub subcategories. For example, marketing tool, then account based marketing software, Then under it, account based data software and then under it, buyer intent data tool. So how to actually gain market share, how to actually grow when you don't have millions and millions of revenue, when uh, you are competing uh, potentially against massive leaders that have been here for years, what do you do? Step one is to start giving a shit about the people you want to impact. It's to stop thinking about you as a business and more thinking about you as a way to help others to make progress in their life. So that can't be a selfish endeavor where you're obsessed about the product you're selling and obsessed over making billions and billions as soon as you can. You need to help a small number of people make progress in their life and then go from there. And this is why niching down as an advice is not just a thing to tick a box with. It's not just an advice to follow and then forget about it. Niching down is a generous act aimed to find an underserved segment of the market that you can own and defend that you can really obsess over for a long period of time so that you become the de facto leader in that small swimming pool for that underserved segment and then grow from there. This is why that's step two. Think in terms of underserved segments. Underserved means that they are not served properly by either the competitive alternatives they are using or direct competitors in the category or the things they are currently doing like because of the habits or whatever that is causing them pain. And so you have many lenses you could look into. First, your segment might be undeserved because of their lack of skills. They don't have the skills to get value out of uh, the category just yet. And so an example of that would be a a company called My Wall Street. They stock advice an investing app when you don't have the the stock market skills to actually uh, make all of those decisions. So they do the decision for you. Their headline is basically the top 1% of investing in opportunities handpicked by our analyst team. So you're left with 1% of investing opportunities that are vetted. You can make the choice without the skills you might be underserved because of your finances. You don't have the money to access a specific solution. And so Lambda School understood that and identified this underserved market to become uh, an online coding school and bootcamp that covers your tuition until you're making at least $50,000 a year. So there's no upfront cost like uh, unless colleges, unlike colleges, and instead of paying a hefty tuition like $40,000 a year, they don't make you pay, you follow it. And then once you get uh, money, you can pay them back they might be underserved because of their switching costs. They might be using something they're tied with. Financially, it could, be, uh, it could be in trouble. Emotionally as well, they might have like emotional ties with whatever solution they're using. And so, for example, Hodger helped at the start folks to switch from very expensive individual tools to a free all-in-one tool. And so instead of paying thousands per month for specific tools that didn't connect with one another, they helped with switching costs by offering something for free that would really replace all of them they might be undeserved because of their current habits. An example uh, a few years ago was AOL, when internet was only starting in America and, and everywhere else. They did this, uh, this campaign where they dropped millions of discs in mailboxes around the country uh, and around the world. And each disc contained a few hours of free time online for users to spend emailing, chatting, reading the news. And that was a massively successful campaign, right? From 1992 until 2002, the number of AOL subscribers grew by 125 times, from 200,000 in America to 25 million. They might be underserved by their time. In the case of Blue Apron, which sends you recipes directly to your door, you might not have time for whatever reason because maybe you, are, uh, you have a, a, a newborn or whatever, and instead of having to buy like, shitty sandwiches and fast food, you can actually get very healthy food to your house like it was cooked by a chef without worrying about it. You might be underserved because of functional dependencies, meaning that uh, the solution that you offer must interact with uh, something that they are already using. And something that I was thinking about was the Tesla tiles that they started to offer, where they basically replace the roof of your house, which is the product you already use, by tiles to be able to have solar panels without um, having to install them. They might be underserved by their worldview and what they believe or don't believe. For example, meat lovers who want to save the environment—they uh, really, uh, who strongly believe that—now starting to have some alternative from meat from companies like Decision Meat, where that offers meat-like products that are actually not meat. They might be underserved because of a lack of access, meaning that they might be living somewhere where they don't have access to this uh, to a particular product or, or to solve that particular pain. And in a subtle way, The Office, uh, the US TV show, actually started this way. It, it, it originally was a British TV show created by Ricky Gervais, but the American audience didn't have access to type of grimace, funny humor just yet. And so this is why NBC started to think about it and say, like, let's bring that uh, to them. They might be underserved because of the existing category they're using that just doesn't give them enough of something that just doesn't help them in one way, shape or form. They might be underserved because they feel incompetent right now with what they're currently doing and ikea with the self-built furnitures that took over the world is a good example of that the competitive alternatives would have been the normal furniture store where you need to be an expert to be able to build those but with ikea and their very simple manual they were able to reach this underserved market of, of folks who didn't want to feel incompetent building furnitures they might feel underserved because Uh, They can't determine the behavior of something. They can't really understand how something works. And that's all about control. In my program, Stand the Fuck Out, uh, where I teach people how to radically stand out, I go really to the extreme of helping them to understand how a radically different product can be created, a radically different brand can be created, so they can gain by control they might be underserved because they are not getting enough attention or rewards. And that's all about recognition where Tesla, the electric vehicles this time, really uh, helped to flip over this category because electric vehicles used to be very expensive and ugly. And people who wanted to to buy them, perhaps who believe in them, perhaps didn't buy them because they felt they they would have been getting the wrong type of attention, maybe or not the right uh, attention. But because of Tesla and, the, and their beautiful design, now people rushed to buy them because they knew they would not only get something in line with their belief but also gain the attention and rewards that go with it. They might be underserved because of lack of scale by like struggling to maintain control as things become more complex. And so that's a typical example. When companies grow, scale uh, is become important and, and, and things become more complex and they, and they have uh, the struggle to maintain things. A very niche example will be in the digital asset management category where companies would use like Google Drive and Dropbox and, and Canva maybe to share digital assets together. But after a certain size, after a certain number of employees, it becomes extremely difficult. And so you have an entire category that is a digital assets management where you can really share everything very easily with all your team, even if you have thousands of people. There is more, like organization, knowing where things are, or relatedness, stop feeling lonely, or care, providing meaningful assistance to others, or influence, being liked, respected, or reliability, counting on things to behave as expected. You can see that all of those things are constraints and things that people look for in specific uh, things, in specific category, and how by thinking this way you can really identify underserved segments. If you look at it from this perspective and this, this length, looking around you, looking at companies and, and products that you use, look at it from this length of underserved segment and you will see that there is always one. There's always an underserved portion of the market that this brand and this company has taken advantage of. So now that you've looked and kind of brainstormed around specific things you can do, you need to ask yourself, who tend to feel this way? Who tend to feel underserved? Who needs this the most? Who do you have access to so that you can market to them? Who do you like working with the most? Like Because business is also personal and you want to have fun doing it. And rank all of those attributes so that you can find the most promising underserved segment. Rank them across access, joy, pain, the size, the potential size of the market that you're going to go after and so that you can pick something. And I just want to, replay again that moment with my second interview with Seth Godin where he talks about the J.C. JCPenney shoppers who enjoy actually going to a shop where they can find discount because it feels like they're beating the system.
2: I believe the worldview of the typical JCPenney shopper and we know their demographics. Their demographics are household income of 20000 to $50,000 at the bottom end of the American household income scale. We know that these are not people who are showing up at the Met Museum gala. They are scraping by, and they're not what a New Yorker would say is stylish, right? That what you're able to buy there are clothes that aren't particularly edgy. But and it's a big but shopping at JCPenney represented a chance to beat the system, to put in the thing you have time to get the thing you don't have, which is status. That what you were able to do is if you were good at shopping at pennies, you could win. And if you won, you would get something that was in short supply in your life was that feeling of superiority over the
0: system. Another example would be my with my program, Stand the Fuck Out, where the people really care about the most to understand how to make their products or service radically stand out without the bullshit so that they really actually know how to do it. have been, tend to be people who've been burned by shitty marketing before and marketing bullshit before. They tend to be quite seasoned, like copywriters, marketing agencies, owners, marketing consultants, CEOs in very saturated market. They tend to, be, to, to want to take more risks than average. And so you can see, By really playing this game of, okay, who's the underserved segment and who tend to feel this way, who tend to really be in pain the most, who tend to have a bleeding neck problem, who do you tend to have access to, who do you really like working with, you can really start to have a segment that becomes uh, very interesting for you. And then step four is to pick the right category. Once you've done all of this work, you can really understand, okay, based on this underserved segment, what is the best box to put our product into so people understand it, right? And remember, it's not about trying to pick the biggest category. It's about trying to pick the smallest category that can sustain you so that people understand it and so you can become the, the, the leader in that, uh, in that category. Pet food will be a big category. Cat food will be smaller. Cat pate will be even smaller. And the organic cat pate will be like, quite small. By really narrowing down the category, you start understanding how you can really take advantage of the advice I shared earlier from the Herrenberg Bass Institute. This is where you can really write down your radical differentiation formula, which is to say that we are the only product in that category that solves that issue, that does that thing for that underserved segment. You can really see how you can capture a significant market share in a specific category and use the resources then to grow and grow and grow. If you think back of the history of all brands and services, they've all started this way because there is no other way to grow. You can't just go after a category leader without having a starting smaller because you wouldn't have the resources. And then finally, step six is really about mixing short-term activation with long-term brand building. That really goes back full circle into the advice they shared at the start. Yes, in order to grow market share and being known, you need to try to reach everyone in the category. But if your category is small and if you really found an underserved segment, your goal is to really grow through generating sales now with sales activation campaigns that are tightly targeted to this specific underserved segment. And mixing that with brand building where you really try to influence future sales, try to have a broader reach to the smaller category that you've identified and which is more of a long-term impact. To summarize, the Herrenberg Bass Institute of Marketing advice to target everyone in a category is misinterpreted. You might not be a brand yet and trying to compete head-to-head against giants in massive categories is a fool's errand the game of radical differentiation is to find an underserved market and do everything you can to serve them and give them a compelling reason to switch this is why it's so important to target those uh, early adopters once you find an underserved segment play with the few lenses i gave you what are the few attributes you can play around like that where people tend to be underserved identify who cares the most about this go to the edge of the map and then go all in by reaching them through um, sales activation, the short term, to reach people who are ready to buy and brand building where you influence future future sales by creating mental brand equity. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm pouring my heart and soul into this. Uh, It will mean a lot to me if you check out the newsletter that goes with this podcast at everyonehatesmarketers.com. I send this newsletter every Tuesday. It's packed with very practical, step-by-step, actionable ways for you to radically stand out. And when you sign up, you also get access to a free 8-lesson course on the same topic. All right, see you on the other side. quickly skim yours amy said also loving the new content that's coming from you it feels really lovely candle said i like your writing a lot it really resonates there's so much bullshitter It's good to touch the authentic and chloe said where is the i fucking love this email button brilliant i hope you subscribe you'll be joining more than fourteen thousand subscribers at this stage which is crazy it's the size of a small stadium anyway thank you so much